Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Every Sunday, Auntie Lily would visit our house in Fibsborough. Lily worked in the South City Markets, where, by dint of her genial personality, she got to know seed, breed and generation of everybody who is anybody in Dublin. Lily readily admitted to being a gossip. Eventually, Lily retired, but gained a new lease of life when she secured a part-time position in the Irish Hospital sweepstakes. There, together with her friend Eileen Sherrick, Lily continued to chat and make friends, and by the 1960s, she could recall fantasy Ecla Dublin with great accuracy. Lily was consulted by many prominent historians. Now, in her 70s, she had status. Lily had been acquainted with Nora Connolly, Estella Solomons and Jenny Wise Power. And when her obituary was published, we realised that as an intelligence officer in Common Amon, Lily had had the ear of many in the revolutionary generation. For my birthday, Lily would give me a book token. One Sunday, she inquired as to the book of my choice. Ulysses by James Joyce, I declared. Without hesitation, Lily snapped. Don't you dare read Ulysses until you're 18. Beside myself with curiosity, I bought Ulysses the very next day. The names of Harrington and Nanetti caught my eye, familiar to me from the framed document which hung above our mantelpiece and addressed to my great-grandfather, Councillor Mendel Altman. I also knew of Mr Cuff, the cattle dealer. He was the sworn enemy of my grandfather, Emmanuel Altman, who worked as an inspector at Dublin's cattle market. And, of course, the girls on the Strand, Sissy and Edie, the same names as my great-aunts. The next Sunday, I pestered Lily with questions. She warmed to the task, but suddenly fixed me with a withering glare. You bought Ulysses, didn't you? she rasped. I pleaded guilty, expecting the worst, but to my surprise, Lily reached into her handbag and produced her own copy of Ulysses. I thought I might allow you to take a quick look at the book, said Lily. An American professor gave Ulysses to me and asked if I knew anybody in it, but he never called back. I could have told him that Joyce got a lot of the names mixed up, she explained. You knew James Joyce, I asked. No, said Lily, but my friend Eileen Sherrick was Joyce's sister. She stayed with me the night her father died. Lily then began to reminisce about our family the Altmans, who lived in Usher's Island. Altman the Saltman was known the length and breadth of Ireland as the country's leading importer of salt, but tragedy struck when Moritz Altman, founder of the firm, died after ingesting poison. The coroner recorded death by misadventure. Moritz's sons, Albert and Mendel, became advanced nationalists and both had hopes of becoming Dublin's first Jewish Lord Mayor, but there was some uh, hostility she mumbled. Lily told me how Albert had connections to the Invincibles and to the escape of the Fenian James Stevens, and how he was endorsed by Arthur Griffith in The United Irishman. Albert's son died shortly after birth, and after the death of his first wife, a Catholic, he married a Protestant. Albert was elected to Dublin City Council, and when he died, he was succeeded by his brother Mendel. The Altman brothers were great Irish patriots, Lily told me but they never got the credit because they were Jewish and nobody remembers them now.
she added sadly. Readers of Ulysses will recognise that Leopold Bloom, like my great-uncle Albert, had two conversions. Bloom's father, like Albert's, died after ingesting poison. His own son, like Albert's, died in infancy. Joyce's everyman is preoccupied with the Invincibles and with the escape of James Stevens, and he's also mentor of sorts to Arthur Griffith. And of course, Bloom, like my grandfather, worked at Dublin's cattle market. Needless to say, I was intrigued by these many coincidences. A few years before Lily died, we all sat down to watch a fascinating documentary on RTE about James Joyce. Lily smiled at hearing Eileen Sherrick's voice. Was Leopold Bloom based on a living person? asked the narrator, and Joyce's famous cartoon of Bloom appeared on the screen. We stared intently at the likeness, and immediately switched our gaze to the photograph of Mendel above the mantelpiece. Eventually, the narrator informed us that Leopold Bloom was based on Ettore Schmitz, Joyce's Jewish friend in Trieste. At this, Lily looked crestfallen. Never heard of him, she said. Dad shook his head and said, Lily, you really should write to Gayborn. I don't think Auntie Lily ever wrote to Gay, but she remained convinced that the Altmans had been airbrushed from Irish history. As for Ulysses, perhaps it suited Joyce that echoes of the Altmans in the book went unnoticed for so long as it could have led to a lawsuit. It undoubtedly suited my family, as my grandfather Emmanuel saw nothing good in having an association with Joyce's smutty old book. Rereading Ulysses over the years, I've become aware of what I like to term coded psychotopographic allusions. One such occurs at Paddy Dignam's funeral in Glasnevin Cemetery. Joyce based Dignam's funeral on that of Matthew Kane, and Kane's grave is some yards from the grave of Albert Altman. After Dignam's coffin is lowered, Joyce writes thus. The mourners moved away slowly by devious paths, staying a while to read a name on a tomb. In stretching the line between fact and fiction to almost breaking point, is Joyce leaving open the tantalising possibility that the fictional Leopold Bloom is reading the inscription on the grave of my great-uncle Albert, Altman the Saltman, who died in 1903 and was, by that time, Ireland's most newsworthy Jew. Who knows? Let's leave the last word to Leopold Bloom himself. Reminiscences of coincidences, muses Mr Bloom in the Ithaca episode. Truth stranger than fiction. For most of my life, four of the Martello Towers that punctuate Dublin's coastline between Bray in the south and Belbriggan in the north have been part of my personal geography. In particular, the round three-storey towers on Dalkey Island, in Blackrock Park where the commuter dart train passes within yards, the Seapoint Tower that watched over many of my summer days, 
and also the most famous Martello Tower of them all at Sandy Cove, known to many as James Joyce's Tower. And for many of those years, the only thing I, and anyone I asked, knew about them was that they were built to defend Dublin from French invasion. Some thought they were named after a place in Italy, or perhaps the tower's architect. Even James Joyce, whose four-night stay in the Sandy Cove Tower in 1904 inspired him to set the first chapter of his novel Ulysses there, showed little knowledge of the tower's history. Never shy of showing off knowledge, he only gives the tower's history two lines. Martello, you call it. Billy Pitt had them built, Buck Mulligan said, when the French were on the sea. That's it. A few years ago, wanting to know more, I asked Heritage colleagues Jerry Clabby, Rob Goodbody and Jason Bolton to help me unravel the story of the Dublin Towers. We began with the name. Martello turned out to be the anglicisation of Mortella, the Italian for the shrub myrtle, which was the name of a point overlooking the Gulf of San Fiorenzo on the northern coast of the island of Corsica. In 1565, a tower was built there by military architect Giovanni Giacomo Palieri Fratino. For more than two centuries, his cylindrical three-storey tower stood in obscurity. Indeed, it might never have come to wider notice had two British warships not attacked the tower in 1794. For two days, their 50 cannon bombarded the tower that was defended by barely 30 soldiers, a single rooftop cannon and limited arms. So impressed were the British with the remarkable show of resistance that after they captured it, they copied its measurements and then used it as the model for coastal defences throughout the empire, from Sri Lanka to Tobago, from the south coast of England to South Africa, and in Ireland, from Derry to Wexford. The towers between Bray and Belbriggan were the first Dublin defences built since medieval times. They were also unique. These Martello towers were the only ones built to defend a city, and the only ones designed as a cohesive defensive chain. In 1804 and 1805, 28 Martello towers and associated gun batteries were constructed. These were formidable defences. There were 28 sites with 65 18 and 24 pounder cannons that could fire up to 1700 metres. They were manned by over 400 artillerymen, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Twelve towers were built north of the Liffey, between Sutton and Belbriggan. These largely worked in pairs to protect potential landing areas. The 16 sites south of the Liffey defended the wide sandy beaches and easy landing areas of Bray, Killiney, Dunleary, Seapoint, Blackrock and Sandymount. They formed a cohesive military unit, with the fire from each overlapping with up to three others. Any attempt to land here would have been met with the fury of at least eight cannon and in some places up to 17. Early drawings and paintings show many of the towers as the most imposing structures in a rural landscape, the only buildings along the coast apart from a fisherman's cottage or two. It wasn't the Normandy beaches, but it was the most militarised coastline in Ireland. However, the towers soon lost their purpose. The defeat of Napoleon finally robbed them of their raison d'etre and the towers started on a road to where today it is hard to fully appreciate their original use. In time, some were demolished to make way for the construction of the railway, 
first to Dunleary and then Bray. Others were destroyed when their foundations were undermined by the ever-encroaching sea. As the city of Dublin expanded, the towers became enveloped by suburbia, posh villas, Victorian terraces and coastal amenities, which transformed them into quaint, picturesque structures. Eight were turned into domestic dwellings, robbing them of any sinister intent. With time, even those surviving in their original setting, particularly on Dalkey Island, Ireland's Eye and Shenick's Island in Skerries, have come to appear as curious oddities. Just two have been fully restored with replica working cannons, at Kalini by Neil O'Donoghue and at Seapoint by the local authority. The other two to survive were converted into tourism attractions. The Hoth Tower became Ye Old Hurdy Gurdy Museum of Vintage Radio and the one at Sandy Cove, a museum dedicated to James Joyce and the first chapter of Ulysses and where each year on June 16th the world's literary community turns to celebrate the genius of a Dubliner. And so synonymous is the Sandy Cove Martello Tower with Joyce and his great novel that I have often wondered how the history of world literature might have changed if those two British warships had not sailed into the Gulf of San Fiorenzo to attack an obscure tower at Punto di Mortella in 1794. Nightboat, Northwall Quay, 8th of October 1904. She didn't travel west to bend her head beneath the cottage lintel. She didn't carry lilies to the dead or bid her mother farewell. She didn't pack a wedding dress of silk brocade, no satin nightgown trimmed with lace. She didn't linger in her attic bedroom, wistful for laughter with friends but sauntered up the gangway in wide-brimmed hat and borrowed coat, saw Jim ahead on the deck, jagged chin, blue-eyed, smiling. She whispered to herself, I'll take my chances with him.
While we can't be certain when and where John Ryan's idea to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bloomsday first occurred, what we can be sure of is that it took place 12 weeks after Patrick Kavanagh's failed libel trial against the Leader magazine, after it published what Kavanagh considered was a scurrilous and bitter attack on his character. The anonymous article painted Kavanagh as an overbearing, drunken poser, hanging around Dublin pubs, cadging drinks and dreaming of literary fame in London. Before the verdict was delivered, Kavanagh, supported by Ryan and Anthony Cronin, had retreated from the forecourts to the nearby Ormond Hotel, the setting for Joyce's Sirens episode. Bloom was certainly in the air. The trial had a profound physical and emotional effect on Kavanagh, and as they made their way along the quays, most of the talk concerned a curious smoking gun that had been left at the scene of a unique assassination attempt. The literary assassination is a peculiar form of warfare among writers and would-bes. The attempt on Kavanagh took place in the Four Courts on Monday, February 8, 1954. The three-man hit squad consisted of a former Taoiseach and two brothers of a Dublin playwright. Over the course of the trial, Kavanagh faced a gruelling 13 hours of questioning by John A. Costello. From the start it was clear that Costello was digging in for a long and hardy battle, and if Kavanagh was to win his anticipated £500 in damages, he had a tougher than expected scrap to contend with. Still, he stood his ground, fighting his corner blow for blow in the cutting and grinding exchanges with the former Taoiseach, until one afternoon when attention was drawn on Brendan Bean, or more importantly, Kavanagh's friendship with him. Kavanagh was furious and dismissed any notion of a relationship with Bean, but Costello continued, and soon a frustrated and animated poet began to emerge. From the very start, the case had become hugely popular, with newspapers covering the story in great detail each day. As a result, queues formed inside the domed hall each morning. Friday's papers carried an account of Kavanagh's robust denial of ever being a friend of Bean. One reader in particular was so infuriated with what he'd read that he sat down and wrote to Costello informing him that Kavanagh had perjured himself. He went on to say that on numerous occasions not only had he been in the company of both men but had actually been first introduced to Kavanagh by Bean. The writer ended by saying he would be available after 6pm the following evening at his address at Klein Road, Kimmage, to be of further assistance, if needed. Whether Costlock took the jaunt over we'll never know, but what we do know is that a loaded gun in the form of a signed copy of Kavanagh's novel, Tarry Flynn, had made its way from a grassy knoll in Kimmage to Inns Quay to be used in an ambush. Costello began proceedings far from being, giving Kavanagh a false sense of security perhaps, but it wasn't long before he returned to the subject of the friendship. Again Kavanagh vehemently denied there ever being one. Costello nodded, reached to his side and held a book aloft. Turning the flyleaf over, he read the inscription aloud to the packed courtroom. For Brendan, poet and painter, on the day he decorated my flat. He paused briefly. Is that your handwriting? For the first time in the trial, a stunned Kavanagh seemed lost for words. 
That is my handwriting, surely. It was a ruthless ambush on the poet. Even though the whole question of the friendship was a sideshow to his libel action, his credibility had suffered a headshot. Within a week, he'd lost the case. But what of that smoking gun, that signed copy of Terry Flynn? Who had transported the weapon? Over drinks in the Ormond, everyone assumed that a book signed to being could only have been in his possession, and that he had to be the informer. Or did he? In 1970, Eulick O'Connor's biography of Bean revealed it was Bean's half-brother, Rory Furlong, who delivered the book that morning. Well, more recently, in Pat Walsh's excellent book on the trial, we discovered, through Costlow's archive, that the letter writer was the fourth of the Bean brothers, Seamus. A man who once boasted that he was the luckiest of all the Beans because he had never written a book. Would that he had never written a letter either. Whatever about his friendship with Kavanagh, the incident caused Bean his friendship with Anthony Cronin, despite the playwright swearing on many occasions that he had nothing to do with it. It was only after Bean had died that Cronin discovered that he'd been telling the truth. The book had been left in one of his brother's houses, and for some unknown reason, they conspired to bring Kavanagh down with it. An act of betrayal that must have horrified Brandon. Costello, Taoiseach again two months later, made amends when he helped secure Kavanagh a paid lecturing post in UCD the following year. As for the book, it changed hands over time and ended up decommissioned in the possession of the late Tommy Smith of Grogan's, itself the scene of many literary assassination attempts. But as battered and bruised as Kavanagh was those following weeks, there was sufficient spring in his step to help create the bloomsday we know and love today. And it's very likely to my mind that the first seeds of it were sown in John Ryan's head that Friday evening as he, Cronin and Kavanagh took in the joyous surroundings of the Ormond Hotel as they waited for the verdict, with the battered and broken poet cursing the day that his deadless to Bean's bloom had ever crossed paths. If ever you go to Dublin town, in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Bayard Street and what he was like to know. Oh, he was a queer one, followed all the dido. He was a queer one, I tell you. My great-grandmother knew him well. He asked her to come and call on him in his flat and she giggled at the thought of a young girl's lovely fall. Oh, he was dangerous, followed all the dido. He was dangerous, I tell you. On Pembroke Road, beside My father and James Joyce have a few things in common. They were both born in Dublin, each to a Dublin mother and a Cork father. They both had a strained relationship with the Catholic Church and they both liked living on the continent. When he retired, my father was gifted a leather-bound limited edition Ulysses by his colleagues. It was to be the source of great interest for me as a young reader, this green and gold, untouchable treasure. Eventually, I was given a second-hand copy to soothe my curiosity. However, it didn't take long until I was overwhelmed with words. I put down my dog-eared edition until my college years in Dublin, where I proceeded to take every class offered to me about Irish writers, all of which offered a section on Joyce. With each new piece of information, the fascination grew. 
Travelling across the city in which he set his novels, I visited the home into which he was born, the school in which he completed his secondary education, and the building that once held his university. I thought of Nora Barnacle finishing her shift every time I saw the words Finn's Hotel above Nassau Street, and wondered on which side of the road they bumped into each other on the 10th of June 1904, six days before what would become Bloomsday, their first date, and the day on which he would set his masterpiece. Luckily, I shared this fascination with my father, whose curiosity was piqued by the writer because of his early and confident rejection of the institution that he himself, decades later, took much longer to detach himself from, his eyes gradually opening to its power structures and treatment of women. When young Jim Joyce was a boy, he was sent to Clongo's Wood College, the Jesuit boarding school in Kildare. And despite enduring corporal punishment, he considered becoming a Jesuit himself. It wasn't until attending the University College Dublin, at that time located on St Stephen's Green, that he began to throw off the shackles of Catholicism. Eventually moving from Dublin to Europe, aged 22, with Nora, his 20-year-old girlfriend. It took much longer for my father to consider his position towards the Catholic Church in Ireland. After studying in the Jesuit-run Gregorian in Rome, Dad was ordained at the age of 32 in Adam and Eve's church on Merchant's Quay in 1985, the same church mentioned in the very first line of Joyce's final work, Finnegan's Wake. Sometime between then and my birth, in 1995, he went on a year-long sabbatical and never returned. Years later, with his daughter in tow, it was with much excitement that he and I took the train from Venice to Trieste one sunny Saturday morning in March. James and Nora spent a cumulative 15 years in Trieste. It was there that both of their children were born and there that he wrote Dubliners, Portrait and Ulysses in some shape or form. Thanks to its geography, the city has been claimed by many a Habsburgian, Frenchwoman and Italian. Arrive by train and you will be greeted by a somewhat shabby square filled with taxis and opportunities to be run over. However, make your way towards the sea and you will uncover the unusual and spectacular collection of buildings that the city has experienced generations of identity crises to accumulate. For four days we walked the soles of our shoes to their thinnest tread depth, visiting every place the couple lived. Their mark is indelibly left on the walls of Trieste, with each house sporting a plaque dedicated to the Dubliner. Our next train journey brought us north, to Zurich, a place I had wanted to go ever since I had visited John and May Joyce's grave in Glasnevin a few years earlier. If you have ever been to Zurich, you will know two things for certain. It is audaciously expensive and obnoxiously clean. The main streets are lined with designer shops and their surrounding parking spaces are filled with luxury sports cars. Even the markets offered no bargains. Thankfully, we had not gone to pick up antiques. We boarded a tram for the zoo, with a dozen or so parents and their children, to the last stop on the line. There, in a cemetery, within earshot of the otters, the Joyce's rest. After years spent in Paris, Rome, Pola and Trieste, their final resting place is under a tree and a small bronze statue of the writer. There was not a soul in the graveyard on the day we went. And though I had travelled thousands of kilometres to see all they had seen, 
for some reason, all I could think about was Dublin. I cannot speak with any certainty for 1904, but I can say from experience that the 50th year in Sirius after it, 1954, was a bad one in Dublin. Most people's lives were at a low ebb, and for this reason, anything that was conducted at all, business transactions, the reformation or perpetuation of literary alliances, affairs of the heart, had to be conducted in secrecy, for fear of editors, employers, discarded soulmates, other poets and such. What I mean is, there was no abandonment of principle, but there could be no publicising of projects. There was too much jealousy and betrayal about, too much hunger, as an acquaintance of mine used to say. It was therefore nothing out of the ordinary when my friend John Ryan came into Davy Barnes and said that there was something he wanted to tell me about, but that it would be necessary to pledge me to secrecy in advance. I assented, silently, over an invisible pint of stout, and was told about a small celebration he and Miles Nogopoline had planned for June the 16th, in which only a very limited number of people, the two organisers, Patrick Kavanagh, Dr A.J. Leventhal and myself, were to be allowed to take part. June the 16th was, of course, Bloomsday, though that was a word not much used then. And June the 16th, 1954, would be the 50th anniversary of the day on which Joyce's great fiction about a Jewish-Irish man of dubious morals and in many ways unprepossessing aspect, was supposed to take place in Dublin. Our celebration would be the first. In terms of the general atmosphere of the time, it was no surprise either when a day or two later the late Brian O'Nolan, otherwise Brian O'Nolan, Elias Miles Nogopoline, Elias Flann O'Brien, came into another establishment and declared that he had a small proposition to put to me, but that it would be necessary to go somewhere else before the exact nature of it could be unfolded. Nor could the someplace else be a public house, for there were too many people, chancers and intriguers and go-betweens and Johnny-come-latelys of all descriptions in the pubs. In the event, we purchased in secret an illegal bottle of putching and adjourned to the stairs outside Sean O'Sullivan's studio, where we drank in public and conversed in private while the typists from the offices in the building tripped up and down. Miles was now, in fact, so far gone in secrecy that he refrained from telling me what he was talking about. I gathered it was something he had decided to call the jant, which was to take place when, you know, the day of your man's book. He hoped I would come on the jant, but I was to tell nobody else whatever about it. Nor was I to tell our mutual friend Con Leventhal that he would be symbolically representing the Jewish community on the day in question. Well, the day of the jant came round. We were to assemble at Michael Scott's house beside the Martello Tower. In two horse cabs, we would retrace the route of the funeral procession and Stephen's morning itinerary. I travelled out with John Ryan and Patrick Kavanagh. The horse cabs were there, horses' noses deep in the bags. Early in the morning, though it was, Miles appeared to be deep in something else. While Mr Kavanagh, even on the journey out, 
appeared to have been absorbing refreshment by some secret chemical process known only to himself. There was, I am afraid, an altercation. There was also an athletic contest of a curious order, for Miles decided to climb up the rocks from our host's garden to the Martello Tower. Kavanagh, not to be outdone, went after him and proved, as might be expected, the better climber, whereupon Miles petulantly grabbed at his ankles and both parties tumbled rather heavily to the ground. The pilgrimage itself was conducted with comparative decorum. Miles had invited also a member of the Joyce family, a distant relative of the novelist, and he turned out to have the tenor voice and to know all of Joyce's favourite songs, including Silent O Moyle Be the Roar of Thy Waters. The late Lennox Robinson and his dog got mixed up in the affair briefly and accidentally in a pub in Sandymount, and neither of them seemed to approve. A couple of photographers materialised in a taxi as we were all taking a brief stroll on Sandymount Strand. We were glad to go on record as honouring Mr Joyce and his fiction, but here let me say that subsequent celebrations, and of course ours was the first, have been a little too much of the self-congratulatory kind, while those gossip columnists who try to prove their cultural aspirations by smarming over the day are really only proving something about the pathos of contemporary Ireland. As for the touristic exploitation of things of the spirit, perhaps the more said, the sooner spend it. In the event, our little jant got no further than the Bailey, where, peace restored between all the participants, we decided that odysseys were at an end. On the way, however, Joyce had played a curious trick on us. 1954 was one of the rare occasions when Bloomsday, June the 16th, actually fell on the Thursday of Ascot Week, the day of the Ascot Gold Cup, the famous race which is referred to in various contexts throughout the book. So had June the 16th, 50 years before. There were at least three habitual punters in our small assemblage, and we were all in some sort, I suppose, learned men. There was much discussion of that day's race, yet we allowed it to be won at 50 to 1 by a horse called Elpinar, which had come over from France ostensibly only to make the pace for a stable companion who was favourite. Elpinor is a character in the Odyssey, a companion of Ulysses, who falls off a height during an altercation, as some of our party had almost done, and is killed. He is represented in Joyce's great book by poor Paddy Dignam, lately dead. Ulysses' bloom goes to his funeral. It was the route of that funeral procession we were actually following. Well, Joyce always believed his book to have prophetic power. He was open about it all, Yet, decorously, like ourselves, he kept it private too. This morning we heard Altman the Saltman, Leopold Bloom and Me by Vincent Altman O'Connor. The Martello Towers of Dublin was by Tim Carey. Nightboat, Northwall Quay, a poem by Jane Clark. The Smoking Gun was by Jimmy Murphy. A Joycean Odyssey by Ava Jones and from the Sunday Miscellany Archives The First Bloomsday by Anthony Cronin first broadcast 50 years ago this year. The music on the programme was Haben Lakir Yi, My Darling Son by the Velvel Pasternak Chorus. We Sail the Ocean Blue from HMS Pinafore sung by the Glyndebourne Festival Chorus. Blumenlied by Gustav Lange played by Ralph Ritchie. If Ever You Go by Patrick Kavanagh and Laci Darem La Mano from Mozart's Don Giovanni sung by Cecilia Bartoli and Brun Terfel.
Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. Jane Clark's poem Nightboat was an original commission by the Bloomsday Festival and for more on that festival have a look at bloomsdayfestival.ie You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.